Welcome to Bitcoin Fixes This, where we explore the impact that Bitcoin will have in all aspects of society. Today's guest is Jonathan B., philosopher and investor. We talk about René Girard and his theory of mimetic desire. We talk about contemporary events, Bitcoin and altcoins in the light of mimesis. Jonathan B., how's everything going? Everything's going great. I'm super excited for this conversation. <laughs> yeah, same here. Same here. And you know, where in the world are you right now? The city of sin, Manhattan itself. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you were going to say Vegas. That's usually right. the city of sin. But well, I, Vegas I, I is more bodily sin, right? There's, more, uh, <laughs> there's a more diversity, if you will, of sins in New York. New York offers a whole you know, appetizer type of sins. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you can you can have any sin that you want, I guess. Yeah, it, interesting. How is it in New York these days? I, I feel like uh, the place has been very volatile the last couple of years. I think it has, but I think we've hit a probably equilibrium. A lot of my friends, mm. me included, I was going to school here in the city when COVID mm. hit and I left around March 2020. A lot of my friends did leave as well. I traveled around. A lot of my friends traveled around. There was this supposed uh, huge exodus from New York to places like Miami and Austin, but it turns out a lot of those folks ended up coming back. So right now, <laughs> most of my good friends are, are back in New York. So I think the city's uh, alive and well. Well, I, I mean, I'm here in Austin and I know there's a lot of people that moved here, but I, I suppose many of them maybe moved back. Yeah, so especially that, the younger crowd. Like I actually moved to Austin for, for mm. about two, two year and a half, two years, but eventually I ended up moving back. <laughs> well, that's maybe like a good jumping off point because, you know, a lot of the reason why, at least for me, a lot of young people move to places like New York or big cities is because of, it isn't because of the high rents or things like that. It's because of something else. Can you talk about that a little bit? And I guess the desire that a lot of people have to move to the big city. Yeah, well... You know, maybe to tie it to the conversation that I imagine you want to be having, mm -hmm. which is around Gerard, mm -hmm. I, I would first give a very brief overview of Gerard's mm. uh, theory of desire. And he essentially thinks mm. that human desires are, there's generally two strands of human desires. One is physical mm. desire, and that is aimed at objects or what objects can do for us. And one is metaphysical desire. And that is mm. what objects really say about us. And I'm using objects here in the broadest sense possible experiences, friends, relationships, job titles, and, and even cities that we choose to live in. And so, so you know, mm. one clear example of this is, you know, some people, when they have sex, they're just there to experience something, right? Whether it's physical mm. intimacy or pleasure in the moment. But also, there's a clear archetype of people who are looking to have sex to be someone. Right? They're not out to mm. experience something, but to prove something. And this is the psychology of the uh, coquette or the Don Juan where they see their ability mm. to seduce, uh, to dominate sexually as, as saying something core about their identity. And I think this bifurcation really extends across uh, the, the spectrum, right? Where you can do, do a job because you like the day-to-day, -day, or you can do a job because, you know, you enjoy what it says about you. And I think that the same exists for cities and perhaps more obviously uh, within cities, postal codes. Right. I, I grew up mm. in, in Vancouver and the, the wealthiest part of it was called, you know, West Vancouver. And when you ask people where they live, 
when someone's from West Vancouver and, and they tell you that, you, you get a feeling that it, it's less about trying to communicate an information about actually where they live, but more so who they are. And mm. I, I think uh, due to no small part, people move to cities because they, they think through cultural influences and through media that uh, a certain city is associated with a certain type of person, right? And maybe from New York, that's Sex in the City, or I, I don't watch a lot of movies, so you don't have to tell me. <laughs> but uh, so yeah, and, and you know, one thing I'll say is, in some sense, Gerard doesn't consider this as a well. He does consider this as a bad thing about human nature, but but in some sense, it, it's inevitable, right? Because before we actually have experience of something, we have to go by our cultural associations and who we associate an object with, right? Before I move to New York and I have no experience of being in New York, I kind of have to go you know, through this uh, metaphysical desire. Um, and the same thing is true with finding a job. You know, when you ask a kid, what do you want to be? And if they show a strong desire, you know, I want to be a fireman, I want to be an investment banker, I want to be an entrepreneur, an investor, a professor. Of course, they are motivated by metaphysical desire because they, they do have no physical desire, right? A desire for experience with the object itself because they have no experience uh, in history or, or track record, if you will, with, with that. It's in some sense, I think it's inevitable. But with this bifurcation in view, I think we can also develop a model of what it means to grow up in, in a sober manner, right? And that is to mm. switch more and more of our metaphysical desires uh, to physical desires once we've gained uh, an experience of different things and have a better idea of what we really, de- really want. Mm. Well, so this idea of physical and metaphysical desire, the idea that there there are certain things that we need like sleep or, you know, food or maybe even like a, you know, like having a mate or something like that. Those are different, as you're saying, than metaphysical desires, which are really more about, you know, things that aren't necessarily things that your body wants or something like that. It's, it's, it's something that you're almost like your soul wants, something at almost a spiritual level. Is that right? That, that, that is right. Although I would be hesitant mm-hmm. to draw too strong of a distinction based, mm. uh, between metaphysical and physical based on what the object is. And you know, let, me, let me clarify here. Even drinking water, right, which is what our body wants, one can be mediated by but by remembering how our favorite athlete drinks Gatorade in those Gatorade commercials, right? So even something like mm. that can be, can be greatly mediated or to, to use a much more clear example, hopefully a clear example, fine dining, right? That's clearly something our body wants, but something like fine dining versus you know, eating at a, a halal food cart in New York is mm. clearly more motivated by metaphysical desire. So I would be hesitant to demarcate activities into like what the body wants and and you know what 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 the soul wants and instead viewing every human activity as as being able to be you know corrupted or infested if you will by by metaphysical desire. Hmm. Yeah, and in that way, it's the demarcation isn't by activity. It's much more about what what you're trying to get out of yes, the activity. Yes, precisely. So, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so for me, like if I'm going to sleep, that's you know, getting rest or something like that. But if you're aiming to sleep on a fancy, you know, hotel with, you know, five-star hotel at the penthouse or something like that, that that's something different. It says something about you. But 
Going back to, I, I guess, you know, talking about Girardian thought, the insight to me that I thought was, you know, I, I think everyone quotes this from Girard, our desire for things, especially metaphysical things, it's not a desire for the thing itself, but it's a desire to be. Can you explain that concept a little bit? Yeah, and of course. And this is one of the central ideas of, of Girard. So you're, you're right to latch on to mm-hmm. it. And, and I think we've already covered it. In fact, mm-hmm. his desire to be is none other than metaphysical desire. So wh- mm. one way to understand the distinction between physical and metaphysical desire is that physical desire is a desire for experience. And mm. a metaphysical desire is the desire to be. Now, I think we can say actually a, f- a few more things and to dive in this concept a bit deeper about what it means to be. And I think, and this is, this is my interpretation, you're not, not going to find it internally within Gerard, that we can actually read Gerard as saying that there's different, that there's three different types of being that we want. Or like we can be, be a bit more clear than just say the desire to be. And the first is that I think we desire to be eternal. Mm. And, and, you know, an example of this is I think one of the reasons why Instagram is so uh, seductive is that it is able to uh, eternalize an instant, right? To take the best moment mm. of your life and for, for you to record that and derive social value of it through time. And obviously before Instagram, people uh, satisfied this drive towards permanence through different ways, right? Whether it's you know, building an empire, writing uh, a very important book, or you know, putting their name on a park bench, having progeny. Um, so that's w- one of the, I think, the goals of, of being. Another one is reality. And the reality here isn't, you know, the reality of tables and chairs, the reality of the mic we're talking to and the computer that the mic is plugged into, but more of a social reality, right? And, you know, to continue to use in this Instagram example, there's the unfortunately all, all too common saying, you know, pics or, or it didn't happen, you know, Instagram or it didn't happen. If, if I didn't post pictures of my trip to Hawaii, did I go there? Did I really go there? Right. And when people say things like that, it's clearly what they're clearly not saying is, you know, if I didn't post a picture of my Hawaii trip. The trip literally didn't happen, right? What they are saying (laughs) is that there is an agreed upon domain really of reality that in some sense more real and more important even than the physical reality of tables and chairs. And and another great example of this, I think, is video games, right? And and especially Mm. the stereotype of the of the modern sort of gamer who who has this, you know, pristine character with a shining sword and a six pack, uh, but but they themselves can be quite you know, unfit, and they don't treat their you know, physical bodies because that's what their a social environment tells them to, to to really put emphasis on, right? In this virtual world, mm. and just to wrap this up real very quickly, the last strand of being that Gerard thinks we want is he thinks we want to be a causal force, and mm. here we can just understand this through Nietzsche's lens of the will to power, right? We want to act upon the world that is congruent with our with our self conception. And sometimes this means, you know, conquering the world like Napoleon. But at other times, if you're a retired mom, uh, it just means like exerting your force through the school board, right? And making sure you know, people aren't like getting too close in school dances or something like that. And the one thing I'll say is that Gerard thinks that these three core ideals within being, permanence, power, and reality, are in some sense unachievable met by man. That, that we, we in some sense are these uh, like petty sacks of meat. And what we're really yearning for <laughs> is to be almost an eternal God, right? In fact, these are the metaphysical qualities of, of the Christian God. And, and, and so Gerard thinks, and this is a very pessimistic view of human nature, that the delta 
between this ideal and our lived experience that we are not as real as we want to be, that we do not exist as long as we want, and that we don't exert the extent of power that we wish we could. This delta, this fundamental lack is what really drives us. That behind most of human activity is this fundamental lack. You know, it's almost as if we are sort of uh, children who are just failing over and over and over again to meet the expectations of an overly demanding parent. But the way we, we go about trying to satisfy these ends, right? Because as you can see, these ends are highly, these ends are highly abstract is by mm. imitating a model that we conceive of as having being and then doing or, or pursuing the objects that are close and proximate to them. And herein lies Gerard's concept of triangular desire, that mm -hmm. desire is rarely unidirectional just from person to object, but it's usually triangular, right? It's, it's mediated by some kind of model. So in, in other words, the models or, you know, a colloquial way to understand this would be the uh, prestigious people around us set the fundamental standards of what it means to exist in great measure in the way that we want to. They sort of take this very abstract ideal of being real, of being eternal, of being powerful, and then through their actions and their associations in the world, set up the standard of what it means in that society, in that social environment, to, to, to be. So this is also a theory, of course, of also how prestige works. And, and on a face value, it's quite a relativistic theory, right? Mm. Yeah, it's interesting that last comment that you said about this is how prestige works. Because as I've been studying Gerard, the thing that keeps popping out at me is how related this thing is to the entire structure of status games that we essentially play. And status games are, of course, by nature, zero sum. And there can only be, you know, one person at the top and, you know, sort of going up and down the status hierarchy is a large part of that metaphysical desire, this desire to be at a higher point. And the conflict that he talks about with respect to, you know, mimetic violence and sort of, you know, the desire and uh, this, you know, coming together where people act more and more like each other. And mm -hmm. I think he calls them mimetic doubles. It's essentially this, you know, trying to align themselves so that they they can be at the top of the status hierarchy. How does Gerard's the how how do Gerard's theories on mimetic desire and you know you know desire for being square with sort of like the structure of human society generally where there's some sort of status hierarchy that people yeah. compete over? I, I think I think that's a that's that's you know um, you, you really should be giving me these lectures for me because that's like <laughs> the exact next logical step that, that you, you need to take it, which is so mm. we've we've discussed the psychological motivations of one individual. How does this manifest when, when sort of we have people in a group? And mm. you know this is this is an entire sort of hour and a half lecture, which is like lecture three <laughs> in the lecture series. But, but I'll try to give you an overview, and I'll start somewhere interesting, which is it can mm. turn what are positive sum games in, in the physical world, in the world of experience, in the mm -hmm. world of goods, in the world of materials, w whatever word you want to use, into zero sum or, or even negative sum games in the social world. And mm -hmm. let me give you a few, a, few, a few examples, right? Think about the time 
when someone close and proximate to you, so someone who's doing what you're doing, desiring what you're desiring, gained an advantage that is actually beneficial to you, but you still felt really, really bad and threatened. And I think there's too many <laughs> examples here, right? Whether mm. if I'm an investor and I see my friend's portfolio double, triple, quadruple, right? Then, then I think it's natural for people to feel a bit threatened. If I'm a bodybuilder and my buddy hits a PR and I'm stuck there, right? Again, the same, I think the same feeling emerges. If I'm an academic and my peer publishes more papers than me, and the sort of the examples just going on and on and on. And I, I think what's really interesting about these examples, right, is if what I really want to do is to practice philosophy, is to uh, be a better investor, is to, uh, you know, lift more weights, if that is what I really want, then these experiences should make me feel happy, right? Because fundamentally, these are not zero-sum domains, at least in the physical, material, uh, experiential world. My friend who's a better trader is going to be able to, you know, give me tips and, and, and surface good investment ideas. My friend who's, who's a better lifter, obviously, is, is going to help me grow. And the same thing obviously exists in, in the academic publishing and in philosophy. But the reason, the, the very fact, also, Jimmy, I'm, I'm going to pause here for a bit. My, my computer went to sleep for a bit, mm -hmm. but you, you can still hear me, right? You didn't break out? <laughs> yes. Okay, yes. okay. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll restart. You know, these domains are, in the, in the, in the physical world, are a positive sum. But the fact that we feel threatened, and, and, and so, and, and I think it's uncommon, if not necessary, to feel threatened when these things happen, just give an idea of how little we care about experience, right? And how much we care about the social <laughs> stuff. And the argument really is this. What, what is at stake in these games often is one's self-conception, right? Well, I, I don't want to make good trades. I want to be an investor, I don't want to live a lot of weights. I want to be a bodybuilder. I don't want to understand philosophy. I want to be known and recognized as a philosopher. And when that is the fundamental model that you start viewing human nature, then this sort of apparently petty phenomenon and a trivial sort of disputes uh, start making a lot of sense, right? If what is at stake is our being, and if our being, which is the aims of reality, power, and, and eternality, is fundamentally exclusive, right? And, and I think it is because in the world of being a philosopher, my reality, right, uh, of people reading my books is, is, is somewhat going to take away from your reality. And if I mm. last, if people look back in the early 21st century and say, Jonathan is the best investor, then that's going to take away, right, that's the e eternality part of being, then that's going to take mm -hmm. away other people's ability to get that fundamental good. So in, in other words, by this Copernican shift of re-evaluating what humans are really after, not as after physical goods, not as utility maximizing machines, but as fundamentally social creatures, uh, sort of uh, perversely uh, fascinated with our position in, in society. He shows the fundamentally zero and often negative sum relations, even when humans are in actually positive sum games. And, you know, mm. I think the most striking example of this is, and I talked about this in lecture one, is the relationship between China and America, or the Sino-American relationship. Mm -hmm. And I think because of the naive assumptions of people in the West in the early 2000s and certainly in the 90s, they believed that economic liberalization would lead to, lead to a greater harmony between China and the United States. And I think the, uh, the flawed argument goes when something like this. You know, once 
uh, the Chinese get integrated into the economic order, they will become richer and therefore happier. And uh, the Americans will also be richer through, through cheaper Chinese, go Chinese goods, and they will also be happier. Mm. And in some sense, the descriptive prediction happened, right? The Chinese did become richer, mm. and the Americans also had a higher standard of living, at least more cheap goods because of it. Mm. But a Girardian will come in and say, and Girard did say this, you know, proximity is what really puts people in, in competition. And the Chinese, who are now closer to the Americans, will, not, will, will feel greater jealousy. And the Americans, mm. who are now, you know, closer to the Chinese, will feel much more threatened. And the absolute increase in the raw amount of goods matters little to us as social creatures than this sort of change in relativistic social standing in comparison. Hmm. Well, that brings up an interesting question, because as I've been reading this, the thing that really kind of struck me is how much mimetic theory applies to international politics. Um, and you, you pointed out this example of the United States and China, but like going back in history, you know, one of the things that I was studying was World War II and what was happening. One of the things that really drove, you know, Soviet Russia, the USSR, this uh, supposed communist paradise that they were building, was they were looking at other nations and saying, wait, they have this, we must also get this. And they had this sort of like prestige kind of thing. And, and we see this a lot in the Olympic Games and things like that, where, you know, it's almost like a proxy war of competing mimetic you know desires of proving that you know my country is superior or something like that it, how much does it play into even things at a you know very vast and macro level rather than you know just you know something that might be happening at your office how much does you know mimetic theory apply to something really macro yeah, I think it applies a tremendous deal. In fact, there's an entire book called uh, Psychopolitics uh, written mm. uh, by one of Gerard's interlocutors that tackles this mm. fundamental question. He uses the Gerardian framework to examine essentially international relations. And I think it's quite illuminating. And in it, one of the examples he gave is how close Bin Laden and the terrorists were to America. I mean, Bin Laden, I, I think I'm going to butcher this, but I'm pretty sure he studied, if not in America and then in the West, and I think some of the 9-11 terrorists, just a few days before they crashed the plane, they were like, I think, like partying it up in, in, some, in some kind of like Western bar. I forget the exact example. Mm -hmm. Please read the book. Mm -hmm. I think I, I butchered that. But the idea is that it applies a great deal. And the reason is because one can examine national identities and national self-conceptions or even class identities and class self-conceptions as uh, through, this, through this Girardian Eve that we've outlined. And, you know, one, one example I can give you of, if not a, a national conflict, then uh, certainly a class conflict is, I, I, think, I think, Greece in, I believe it's, it's around, you know, 2500, uh, I'm sorry, sorry, 500 BC, so, so about 2500 years ago. This was, I think, after the time of Homer, before the time of Socrates. And Greece society w was undergoing a great transfer in wealth. Through the introduction, I, I think of slaves through conquest, as well as the developing of, of proto-markets. And mm. what happened here was that the upper classes, the aristocracy, sort of stayed the same. And as so many of these introduction of the markets go, the sort of middle class, right, the merchant trading class, started to gain more and more power and wealth. And then a few interesting things happened. One is that they started getting closer 
the, the merchant class, right? This was the previous middle class that is starting to approach uh, the aristocracy or the nouveau rich, if you will. They started imitating fundamentally aristocratic, aristocratic practices that were just fundamentally unthinkable to them about 100 years ago. And one, the, the key one, right, is, is pederasty, you know, the, the practice of mm. sort of aristocratic males having sexual relations with their mentees, with, with young boys, right? So it's a, a form of a pedophilia. And so the rising merchant classes, because of their proximity to the, the, the aristocracy, they felt legitimized to, to practice this fundamentally aristocratic practice. But there's also mm. an interesting psychology of resentment going on. Whereas mm. through, through politics, they, they try to ban all aristocratic practices while secretly practicing it themselves. And a similar sort of psychology happened with the aristocratic class. They were, as the old money so often, so, so often is to new money, they were both jealous, but also wanted a piece of the new money. And, and so <laughs> while they all partook in commerce, they started devaluing commerce. They made having money crude and they set up mm. new standards of virtue, namely honor. And so, you know, this is another example where you can apply this, you know, fundamentally, uh, simplistically zero sum type of mentality uh, to not only two individuals, but to two classes, right? And if you can do that with two classes, then you can do that with two, two nation states as well. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and, and fundamentally, what we're talking about is this, um, this idea of envy, which at least in the areas that I study, particularly in economics, it's almost never sort of like taken into account. If you read anything by, you know, a modern economist, say, they assume each person to be rational like homo economicus. Precisely. Yeah. yeah. Homo economicus, right? Like it's they they will maximize utility. They don't care about what their neighbor is doing or anything like that. But what you're positing is, and what Gerard is positing is, actually those things matter quite a bit. What your neighbor is doing, especially in the neighbor that you admire, and what you do, um, you know, uh, matters a, a great deal to other people that are observing you and want to be more like you, and so on. And it is this is sort of like. I, I don't know, like, uh, there's a different force here. And it's all about that social zero sum status game that isn't taken into account when you're talking about, you know, all, all of the things that are going on in, you know, normal, normal relations with in any community. But going back to this, like positive sum zero sum thing, Naturally, there are lots of positive sum activities. So if you are creating some good, like, you know, you're turning iron ore into cans or something like that, that's a positive sum game from an economics perspective. But there is a tendency for people to turn even those things into zero sum games. And it's related to this thing that you said earlier, our desire for permanence, power and so on. How is it that this ends up resolving itself? Because you have a lot of people that want the same things. They want to be at the top. It, it isn't about utility or, you know, gaining wealth even or, uh, you know, material goods. It's about something else. How does that resolve itself? Yeah. So before we go there, I actually want to uh, mm -hmm. build upon our, mm -hmm. our conversation. Mm -hmm. uh, one is to actually mm -hmm. make the argument that some of the, some of the times it's not only zero sum, but it's actually negative sum. Mm -hmm. And then the second mm -hmm. is to reaffirm your uh, sort of economic uh, intuition. Mm -hmm. um, but mm -hmm. I'll, I'll start with the mm -hmm. first one. So mm -hmm. um, what we consider to be positive sum games is, is you know, you, you win, I win. Mm -hmm. You know, zero sum games is you, uh, you lose, I win, 
And then there, there, there probably should be, can be another category of, you know, you lose, I lose, where it's connected fundamentally to this Girardian idea of envy. Because Girard thinks, if, if I'm mediated by a model who's far away, right, uh, you know, Shakespeare or something like that, I think we, we tend to feel less threatened by them. You know, we, we tend to mm. blame them less for our own failure. However, once, if we are model, if we are mediated by someone very close and proximate to us, and here are all the examples I gave before, right, of, of your best friend, you know, making more money than you in stock markets, you know, you're, you're lifting buddy lifting more than you, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're uh, your academic buddy, you know, getting them a prestigious job than you. Gerard thinks that even when this is not literally the case, we tend to, um, and this is simply an empirical statement, we tend to start blaming them, right, as robbing us of our being. So this lack that we talked about, this fundamental mm. lack that we will actually never satisfy, no matter what we do, um, we start blaming some of this onto others. And mm. what this gives us a reason to do, or rather, what, what psychology this inspires is actually a reason to hurt others just for the sake of hurting others, right? And unfortunately, mm. this is a psychology, even though, even if not, even if most people don't experience it, but, but I, I think it'd be hard to argue that this isn't a psychology that real humans face, right? That even if I were to lose, if you lose more than me, I am happy, right? So, so I just wanted to build upon that point that it's not just negative sum games like making you lose to make me win. Gerard psychology gives individual reasons to make other lose, even if you yourself do not gain or even if you lose um, because you feel resentment and you attribute blame to them, right? Mm. But now let me go to my second point about the economic intuition because mm-hmm. I think there's a, there's a lot more that we can say here. The first thing I'll say is that I think that's so, mm-hmm. so yeah, you know, I've been building a fintech business in the sort of wealth management space for the last two years. Mm-hmm. And the first thing that when you talk to a lot of wealth managers that you realize is that uh, in their relationship, their clients, right, performance actually matters a lot less than people might prima facie think uh, going into mm-hmm. the industry. In fact, w- when you're sort of constructing portfolios for your clients, uh, obviously, you know, you do a sort of uh, risk reward analysis, right? Uh, and obviously, a lot of times, risk is measured by max loss. One important way to think about max loss is how much of your portfolio can go down, and you still meet your, you know, your, your child's like payments or like, like again, like physical demands by the world, right? Like you can still pay rent, you can still retire on the age you want. But perhaps what is even more important is what is the max loss that you can stomach. Right, and so mm. if you look at the fintech space when it comes to portfolio construction, a lot of the tools that that people are being built are actually trying to tease out this sort of second type of loss. How much psychological mm. loss can you really stomach? Right, not not what you actually need, but how much can you stomach? Uh, mm. and, and so there's some tools, you know, run you through scenarios and say, you know, if oh it happened again, this is how much you would lose, and you try to gauge the, the response of your clients. But another important factor of this, right, is how well your portfolio is doing compared to others. And uh. I think that's a fundamental sort of argument against the sort of homo economicus, right? If everyone's down 50% and I'm down 30%, I'm, I'm feeling pretty good, right? If everyone is up 50% and I'm up 40%, I'm going to be start pointing fingers. And, and this is often how, how, how things go. And it's a very you know, delicate balance that a lot of these wealth managers have to work with. But I think it goes much 
further beyond, beyond just that, even I think our core notions of economic value is, is grounded upon this Mises, right? Just think about all the different types of uh, currencies that, that have existed you know, throughout, throughout, throughout society. You know, I think the most extreme example of this, I, I can't remember where, I think it's one of the Pacific Islands, the indigenous peoples there, their currencies were these like gi- giant stone wheels, right? Rye stones. Yeah. I, I, precisely. That's the example I was, I was thinking about. And then, you know, one, one of the crazy stories was one of these wheels, I think, was trying to be transferred through a boat and it sunk in the water. But they could still use that to trade. And, and we, we were just like, what do you mean? They're like, well, no, it's in the bottom of the lake. Well, we're like, but the stone is the currency, surely, right? But if you look at our own, own economic system, uh, how much of it is grounded by just like shoveling paper and changing numbers on economic ledgers, right? And this is even more true for Bitcoin. You see the mm. m- truly mimetic foundations of, of value itself. Anyways, so that's to, you know, I, I just gave, you know, two arguments mm-hmm. there. One to sort of push the argument even further that not only mm-hmm. are relations zero sum, they can be negative sum. And a second point is, is this economic point that, that, that we're really, uh, well, well, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, let, let's dive a little deeper into the economic point, because I, I find this very fascinating. I, I think it explains to some degree this fascination that a lot of people have with altcoins, because what, what, what you are saying with altcoins, yes. uh, you know, coins other yeah, than yeah, Bitcoin, yeah, yeah. because they they focus so much not on whether or not their portfolio is growing at a certain rate. It's making sure that you beat other people, or in the case of a lot of people that have come in later, it's to catch up to the people that have you know that were in this space for a long time, and that that sort of like motivation uh, based on, I guess, envy or, you know, a desire to be at the top of the status hierarchy and, you know, which in this case would be measured by, you know, how much money you've made or something like that. That is an enormously strong motivator for why people take a lot of really ridiculous risks and you get, you know, blow ups like Luna. How much of human suffering do you think is because of this streak of envy? Yeah, that's a good question. Let me just make one more point and then I promise I'll answer <laughs> so I'll start actually answering your questions instead of just le- leading us down one rabbit hole after the other. The, the one more point I was going to make is that mm-hmm. I, I actually think, and, and hopefully to your, to your, to your listeners mm-hmm. who I think are more, economics is a great way to, for them to enter into, into mimetic theory. I think this bifurcation we drew between physical and metaphysical desire actually exists in the valuation of assets as well. Mm. Or to put it this way, that more the more the assets fundamental valuation is grounded on, you know, speculation is too loaded of a word, but we'll say like hy- hypotheticals and not just fundamental cash flows we can point to, right? I think the more it is subject to these mimetic forces. So in, in this universe, the cash flows are the are the object of physical desire. And the sort of growth, if you will, right, is the, mm. uh, is the domain of, of metaphysical desire. And, mm. you know, this is why, you know, if I have an infrastructure company and, and all we do is that we have two roads and we collect 10% toll on the roads, we're not going to have a massive speculative bubble around that, right? Because it's, mm. it's grounded in, in, in reality. And, and so this is also a helpful point because it reels back in human nature a little bit. We're, we're not just people who just endlessly build towers in, in, in the sky, so to speak. But 
it, it is checked against reality. But my point is that there are certain domains to market, if you will, or, or whose check against reality is much more is much less frequent, and, and its results are much harder to interpret. And as a result, mm. those domains, those domains, mimetic illusions or delusions, if you're feeling, if you're not feeling too charitable, are much easier to sustain, right? And so, mm. a growth tech stock whose most of their profits are not based on cash flows you can point to, but based on some kind of story that they tell. You know, you know this is our TAM. We're only ten percent. Here, here's how we can cross sell. The more that an asset is subject to speculative frenzy, because there's no way you can check that narrative. Right, and something like Bitcoin is almost on the extreme of that, because it doesn't even claim like cash flow does not factor into it at all, right? Mm-hmm. And it tells probably the most well, speculative and hardest to to validate story of, of being a sort of a, a global global currency. Well, yeah, it, it's supposed to be money, which has very different characteristics than an investment. But going back to what you were saying about this uh, speculative frenzy, the um, sort of almost mimetic desire to own the stock that sort of takes over. I've seen this a lot in in our space, especially with respect to something like Dogecoin. But it's also happening a lot more in the stock market with with something like Hertz, which was a bankrupt company. Everyone knew it was a bankrupt company, but the stock pumped regardless. We, we saw something similar with GameStop, AMC, a lot of these uh, sort of Wall Street bet type things. At least for me, it, it, it seemed almost Nietzschean where there were a few core people that decided to use the desire of others to you know, imitate them to pump something. Um, and, you know, I, I think in economics, uh, this sort of like contest of what's more popular is what we call like a Keynesian beauty contest. You know, that dynamic completely takes over and the fundamentals don't matter at all. Yeah. And that, that, that's, uh, that's something that I think using mimetic theory that, uh, as you pointed out, it, it, it's a lot easier to explain. Totally. And, mm-hmm. you know, just to be clear here, mm-hmm. when, when we say, and uh, because I wanted to make this as plausible mm-hmm. to our listeners as, as possible, when we say that a few individuals ask us to imitate their, you know, and to buy Bitcoin, I, I think if Gerard was to analyze this, he wouldn't say, you know, we look at, uh, you know, our, our rich friend buy Bitcoin and, and we just all automatically follow him, right? Because clearly that's, that's not what mm-hmm. humans do. We, just, we don't just automatically copy uh, sort of actions. Mm-hmm. What we copy, I think, is their normative values, that, th- that, that their belief in this case that, that Bitcoin will be valuable, and, and which, what, that leads to the action. So I, I, that's, that's quite an ap- academic and, and trivial point to delineate. No, no, that's, that's an excellent yeah. point, because what, what I think we, we forget is that if, if they copied the exact action, they would just buy Bitcoin. But what they're copying is something deeper, yeah, which is precisely. this uh, ability to grab something very early, which is why they buy an altcoin that launched a month ago instead of Bitcoin, which, you know, if you study this thing a lot more then you would be buying Bitcoin. Instead, they want to imitate the, I guess, the thing that they perceive as uh, the thing that made, you know, the OG Bitcoiner very successful, which is the uh, the willingness or, you know, des- uh, the, you know, 
getting into something very early. And that that's the only thing that they imitate and not the actual fundamental value that they, they that the OG Bitcoiner found. That, that, that's right. And, you know, this idea uh, to pull it a bit out of economics mm-hmm. for, for, for mm-hmm. a while, that what is what, what Mimesis transmits fundamentally is normative values is deeply threatening to the modern Western uh, philosophical intuitions, right? This is why mm-hmm. many who read Girard consider him a reactionary, not even a conservative, but a reactionary. Um, because, you know, ask ourselves this, what do the, if not academic, but popular, uh, the popular, uh, the public mind, where does it consider where normative value derives from? I think there's two popular answers. One is, is, is as a legacy of the Enlightenment. It says reason, right? Reason is how we get to normative value and how we gain certainty. And, mm. and the second one, right? And this is why, for example, public discourse is important, right? Mill's sort of mm. our, our argument for, for free speech. Um, and the second one is romanticism, right? That, that we, through our own, if not experiences, then the strength of our desires you know, d- d- determines truth. It, it determines how we, we know a normative value to be certain. Right. And this is behind movements such as uh, the transgender movement. Right. Like you will know if you desire this strong enough, then you, yes, you have the, the, the most privileged uh, epistemic access to what gender you, you really are. And Gerard's mm-hmm. mimetic theory goes against both of these treasured Western intuitions. That first, reason is often the spokesperson, a mere defensive lawyer to fundamental intuitions that are actually grounded socially. And second, the strength of our desire is often not correlated at all to their legitimacy. Right? After all, <laughs> we do desire luxury goods strongly. We can desire a very problematic partner. In fact, if a desire is too strong, Gerard instead thinks of it as suspect, as being fundamentally motivated by this desire to be and not attributed to any uh, real-world sort of qualities. And so to zoom out a little bit, you're right in thinking that he, he's sort of tearing down the, the fundamental assumptions of modern economics, but that's only because he's tearing down the fundamental assumptions of modernity as a whole. <laughs> and, and indeed, that, that's one of the more interesting insights to me, because the basis of, uh, of a lot of the analysis, especially in economics, is based on empiricism. You know, here, here are these numbers and here are those numbers. And, um, you know, they, they try to f- sort of fit certain formulas and say th- this is why X or Y happened. When, in fact, it's, it's much more fundamental or deeper uh, and occurs at sort of like the person-to-person level where – your desires, your dreams are affected by the community that surrounds you, and they don't arise independently and aren't completely utilitarian or rational. It's oftentimes based on, you know, what you observe and the people that you've seen. Yeah. All right. So, so let's move on from here, because the other thing that I really wanted to talk about is mimetic violence. Can you explain this concept? Yeah, and I think we've, we've already briefly touched upon this, right? An example of rivalry. So an mm. example of rivalry, we, we've discussed how relationships can be negative some. That I gain, whether it's legitimate or not, and, and I think most people listening, if they introspect, they, they would realize this, that we tend to attribute blame to others for our own sort of senses of lack, whether it's warranted mm. or not. 
right? Or to put another way, you know, maybe the human drive for causality and for a story, once that is applied to our own suffering, which Gerard sees as constitutive to the human experience, makes us readily project blame onto others. And Gerard's belief is that in different historical circumstances, once the collective suffering is enough, we will start attributing blame upon one group of people and expel them. And the reason that this mechanism works is not, is often not that the, that the people are actually guilty, that they're responsible for the systemic issues, mm. but that we, again, as social spirited creatures have this built up, pent up anger that requires catharsis to relieve us. So, so you, you see how this fundamental difference in assumptions, right? One small difference in assumptions of who humanity is just changes everything, right? All the way from economic theory, all the way to conflict resolution. And so Gerard thinks that, you know, Hobbes very famously, and I think this is a, actually a wrong reading of Hobbes, but, you know, Gerard thinks that Hobbes believes that in the middle of war of all against all, when everyone is angry and at each other's throats, the way peace can be achieved is the coming together to using reason to create some kind of social contract, a sort of rational understanding that, you know, if we were all to come together and establish a state with, with the, all these controls, right, the Leviathan, then all of us would win and all of us will, you know, succeed in the game of self-preservation. And, and Gerard says, this is ridiculous because the moment, the precise moment when the social contract is needed the most it is available the least, right? If you've ever been <laughs> into an argument, let alone against different nations and different groups of people who have been slaughtering you, but even as a, to a friend that you've just been mad at for a few days, you know that mm. reason is the most impotent at that time. And so Gerard's explanation instead of how conflict resolved is purely symbolic, catharsis, mm. right? And he gives a, a plethora of, of examples here, but the most... The one I think our listeners would, would most agree with is the relationship with the Nazis and the Jews, right? Where, where the Jews were blamed for uh, the decline of the Weimar Republic, they were scapegoated, and they were sort of wrongfully uh, expelled, which led to a massive, you know, cathartic event. Hmm. I was reflecting on this whole scapegoating mechanism, especially in the modern world, because I, I think it's very easy to forget that, you know, justice isn't necessarily like a natural human instinct. It's something that we almost have to be taught. And, you know, I, I think Gerard's idea is basically like, you know, we kind of throw out justice and blame some other people just so we can move on and like sort of experience the catharsis that we talked about. I was thinking about just in the realm of politics and particularly in the Democratic Party, how the vice presidential candidate whenever they lose, tends to end up being kind of the scapegoat, right? Mm, um, so right. Two, year 2000, you had Gore versus Bush, and the VP candidate on the Democratic side, the side that lost is, of course, Joe Lieberman. He gets alienated from his own party, you know, speaks at the Republican convention eight years later, and more or less becomes a persona non grata in the Democratic Party. Similar thing with Jonathan Edwards, who also lost to Bush, you know, as uh, the bottom uh, part of the Democratic ticket in 2004. And, you know, even going back further, you can, you know, look at like Spiro Agnew as the actual VP under Nixon, you know, kind of 
going away with scandal. And that was their sort of attempt to uh, find a scapegoat. This mechanism seems to be very common where it's not necessarily like physical death, like, you know, like maybe it was uh, in ancient times or in contemporary North Korea, for example. Mm -hmm. But instead, it's, uh, it's almost like a political or social death, which could be you know, like the whole idea of cancel culture where, you know, um, you just sort of kill them in a online or something like that. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think you're uh, already intuiting the the most important Mm -hmm. movements of the scapegoat mechanism, or or rather Mm -hmm. maybe qualities. One is that Mm -hmm. the victim, the scapegoating is unjust, not because the victim is Mm -hmm. fully innocent, but that the extent to which they they, they were blamed is, is wrong, mm. right? So, you know, did the vice presidents of the Democratic Party contribute to their loss in, in the case of when they lose? Probably. But were they the sole and single cause? Almost certainly not, right? And so scapegoats often have some have, – have different qualities that sort of mark them out. You know, one quality mm. is that they need to be near to the social order. And the reason is because, you know, it's not that satisfying and, or even believable to say, you know, that guy over there, 5,000 miles away from us that we've never interacted with, he's the problem for all of our, our struggles, mm. right? Um, that, that clearly mm. does, that doesn't work. However, the scapegoat also has to be very far. And the reason here mm. is that if you expel someone close to the power nexus of a group, you don't gain catharsis. You just start another strand of violence. This happened, mm. for example, in Greek myth. This is what Gerard brings up with Agamemnon and Iphigenia. Right? Agamemnon has to sacrifice Iphigenia to, to gather, uh, and he pissed off one of the gods, I think it was Athena, to get wind so that the Greeks could sail to Troy. Of course, Iphigenia is his mm. daughter and at the very core of the Spartan power nexus. And what happens next? Mm. Well, his wife, when Agamemnon comes back to Sparta, kills him out of vengeance. And then Agamemnon's son, Orestes, kills Clytemestra, and, and so on and so forth. So, so the vice president is interesting because they are both near and far from, this, from the social order, mm. right? Where they are near, obviously, because they're, they're in power, but they're far because they're, they're not important, right? That's why they're the vice president mm. or they're not that important. <laughs> you can't ask the main guy. And so, mm. you know, what, one historical example of this is obviously the European aristocracy intermarried a lot. And Mary mm. Antoinette, her Russian status in the French Revolution and the trials that ensued was often mm. brought up as a reason, right, for mm. persecution. And I think a, a figure like Marie Antoinette is the perfect scapegoat because they are so near to the social order yet so far, right? They, they have no connections in, in France uh, beyond their, their, their sort of marriage, but, but they are near because they're, they're core to the, the power nexus. So per, perhaps the vice president fulfills the same role after losing the election. Mm. Yeah. And that's, to me, one of the really fascinating things. One of the things that one of my friends that is a Bitcoiner and, uh, you know, is familiar with Gerard that that he said to me, which I want to get your take on, is that he thinks that in many ways, Satoshi is anti-mimetic in the sense that you can't imitate Satoshi, like, because we we know very little about Satoshi and there are no sort of like objects to which we can attach our desire. There's no, it, because it's an anonymous figure that somebody, you know, that it's sort of outside our purview and, and really all of it 
all of our knowledge about Satoshi is almost entirely speculative. That ends up actually making it very difficult to have this uh, social status game that a lot of other systems end up with. What what do you think of this idea that Satoshi is anti-mimetic? Yeah, there's a lot of probably interesting strands, but Mm -hmm. my first thought is that I probably disagree with that. And mostly Mm -hmm. because, as we discussed before, the less well-defined something is, the more room there Mm -hmm. is for mimesis to operate, right? And this goes back to Mm -hmm. our conversation about assets and how something with Mm -hmm. clear fundamentals is much less subject to contagion than something with not. And this sort of statement um, that, that your friend articulated that, you know, someone so speculative and ill-defined cannot be a model, I don't think is right. Because as Gerard clearly thinks, fictional people can be role models as well, right? Like um, mm. Amadia Gaul for Don Quixote, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. obviously the Greek heroes. And so I would say that that premise is wrong. And he might be even more mimetic because our imagination can, can be given free reign to sort of theorize who he was, right? Put another way, if he was revealed to be this, you know, aging, like, you know, unfit (laughs) 70-year-old, right? A very unappealing, unattractive figure living in his mom's basement, you know, perhaps that, that, perhaps he would be a a (laughs) lot less, uh, you know, have a lot less mimetic valence than he does today. Mm. Well, it's interesting to me because what I've seen in the altcoin space, particularly with founders, is that they don't imitate Satoshi at all. Instead, what they tend to do is imitate Vitalik Buterin, who is clearly at the top of the altcoin hierarchy. Yeah. And, you know, they sort of almost always say sort of like, uh, you know, weird things that he does. He has sort of like a mannerism that's very... Distinct. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, almost like very nerdy. Um, they, they try to imitate that. You know, he he condemns Bitcoiners as Bitcoin maximalists. They, they sort of imitate that as well. There's a lot of imitating going on because they see they want to be him, right? The, the guy that made, you know, billions of dollars creating uh, an altcoin or something like that. Rather than, you know, doing something like Satoshi did, there, there's at least as far as I can tell, the people in the space, especially in altcoins, they have no interest in imitating Satoshi because he doesn't, yeah, there's nothing to like go and be, you yeah, know what I, I mean? Yeah, like, I, uh, I see, I see. And, and from that perspective, yeah. then I, I would I would think mm-hmm. that your your friend's argument could be, could, could have some mm-hmm. ground where mm-hmm. there's so little that Satoshi offers Right of what he's interested in, of what, what his beliefs are, other than that that one white paper, that he mm-hmm. doesn't really give us much. And, and here, what this reminds me of is Gerard is saying, you know, it's it's not just about the heightened being of a model that makes us want to imitate him, but obviously it's about what objects he's associated with, right? And so the example mm-hmm. that Gerard gives is that I think a relic of a saint is much more important and desirable mimetically than. Uh, a rosary that the saint, the saint simply touches because the object is closer mm. to him, right? And, and the same is true mm. for you know us wanting to be like Michael Jordan. When we say, I want to be like Mike, we don't go and shave our heads bald. We go and buy Jordan <laughs> sneakers, even though being bald and having sneakers are equally qualities of Michael Jordan. One is considered to be, mm. one set of objects is considered to be much more proximate to the model. And so mm. here, maybe the idea goes something like, because Satoshi never had any objects that you could associate with him with, then mm. he's anti-mimetic in, in, in that regard, right? Not because mm. 
he's undesirable, not because his being is not heightened, but because mm-hmm. there's just even if you want, do want to imitate him, he casts such a broad light that, that, mm-hmm. that he doesn't point to anything in, in particular. Right. And that to me is, and even if you were to imitate him, you'd have to be anonymous on the internet. No one even would even know that yeah, you yeah. are trying to imitate him. So it, it's extremely problematic in that regard to, to imitate him, at least strictly speaking. The two things he's known for is creating Bitcoin and being anonymous. Like that's... Yeah. How do you imitate something like that? Yeah, it's, that, that, it's, uh, <laughs> that, that's actually really interesting. And, you know, I'm going to piss off a lot of my Christian friends, but this is what Gerard <laughs> says about Jesus. Um, uh-huh. That Jesus mm-hmm. is a model, is a healthy model for us because of his distance. Mm-hmm. And this actually applies mm-hmm. exactly to Satoshi. And my friends are really <laughs> going to kill me when I say this. But he uh-huh. said that, you know, Jesus, at the very moment he could dominate, he withdrew. Mm-hmm. Obviously, he's referring, mm-hmm. or I don't know, obviously, but he, he's referring to mm-hmm. the moment when Jesus came back from the dead, right? If mm-hmm. he were to show mm-hmm. up to the Jewish and the Roman authorities, then he'd be made the king of the world, right? Clearly, this guy just came back mm-hmm. from the dead. Clearly, he's, mm-hmm. there's something here. But Gerard says, no, Jesus chose to withdraw. And mm-hmm. it's that withdraw that we must also imitate, right? And this is why Gerard, mm-hmm. uh, very pessimistically, the only solution he prescribes for mimesis in a time we're in is withdraw, just to leave the world. Mm-hmm. And he, he's not very clear on the positive do what, but the <laughs> example he gives is Holder Lynn, right? The 19th century poet, contemporary of Schelling and, and Hegel, who literally holded himself up in a tower for the last, I think it was like 20 years or 40 years of his life, just completely mm-hmm. anonymous from the world. And so in that regard, Satoshi also invites us to withdraw in some sense, right? And, and he's actually <laughs> difficult to imitate because of that. I, I actually really like that. I'm, I'm coming around to your friend's position. <laughs> yeah, well, I, that is very interesting because the obvious question, I think, for people that are curious about Girardian thought is, okay, like there is, uh, you know, they, they might agree with everything that we've said so far, but the obvious question afterwards is, so what do I do about it, right? Like the, the desires are still there. We, we still want to be like Mike, as you put it. What do we do? Do we get rid of that desire? Do we deny it? Do we starve it to death? What, like oh, yeah. how do we act yeah. in a way that we aren't affected by these yeah, weird yeah, status yeah, games yeah. that like sort of consume us? Yeah, yeah. That's a great question. And one that you should not go asking Gerard. One, because he's dead. And the second <laughs> is because he really has nothing really to offer you here. Uh, or he's mm. very, very little, right? He, in fact, he explicitly mm-hmm. said, I'm not in the business of giving you positive ideals. I'm just going to tell you what is. And in fact, mm-hmm. he does say it's up to posterity to, to, to sort of try to understand him best and, and try to mm-hmm. figure out what to do. So in some sense, we're doing perhaps the most Gerardian activity possible. Now, obviously, this question has plagued me for the last, you know, four to five years. So I thought quite a lot about this. And I have a few sort of ways of response. The model that I think that one could live in, I'm not saying it's the only one or even the best one, but it's simply the one that I've, I'm stumbled upon, is I think the end state is re- – the best end state to live consistently is to renounce this desire to be. And Gerard does think it's mm. possible. And in fact, he gives – stories that are of sort of eastern religious heroes who let let go of this Mm -hmm. desire not perhaps not unlike the buddhist uh, drive to extinguish this this desire as examples of what can be achieved so it's clear that gerard believes it is both good and it is possible to extinguish this desire 
And let me remind you, with this desire to be gone, we're not vegetables because we still have that desire to experience, right? And in fact, at least in my own life, the more I've gotten rid of this desire to be, I think the more content and happy and perhaps even successful I've become. Like this Gerard project, it, it almost, you know, in the beginning, it started because of the metaphysical desire with Teal, right? But eventually it became almost an exclusive physical desire for the joy of understanding and reading Gerard. Mm. And the more and more, and I, you know, I switched from CS to philosophy to study Gerard, and that was a complete switch from metaphysical desire to physical desire, right? I just like philosophy in mm. and for its own sake. CS was more about, you know, uh, I want to be an entrepreneur. And mm. that is the, I think, the end state that I'm still striving for. Mm. And then the question is, like, how, how do we get there? And mm. here, this is not Gerard at all. I'm just making this shit up. <laughs> I'm taking an approach of accelerationism. And, and so accelerationism, uh, popularized by a thinker such as Nick Land, um, who's still alive today, actually, is the idea that for a political system that you do not want to live in, the best way is to accelerate the logic of such a system. This is quite a Hegelian idea, mm -hmm. right? That if we push the mm -hmm. imminent logic of, of, of something to its core, it will lead to the conditions to engender the next stage. And, and some have mm -hmm. read Marx in Das Kapital as an accelerationist, that you know, the, mm -hmm. the, the, the true Marxists today are the billionaires because they're the ones who are you know, pushing the logic of capital uh, and exploitation. Again, I'm not saying I believe this. I'm saying this is what a Marxist would say. Mm -hmm. To its end, so to, to break the system so fundamentally that, that, that the sort of socialist utopia can be established, right? And, and so you... Mm -hmm. And I'm sort of using that same logic for my own life and the current metaphysical desires that I've had. Because looking back, I've realized that the most, at least for me, effective way to get rid of these metaphysical desires is, is really to obtain them, right? And for me, it was either, you know, <laughs> dating beautiful women or getting into an Ivy League or doing this and doing that. And, and what, what I realized is because these desires are illusionary, once you get them, you have the immediate experience to realize that they're, they're illusionary. This also happened, by the way, for me in gaming. As a young kid, I just used to play World of Warcraft mm -hmm. like 24-7. But then I just became so mm -hmm. exhausted about it, right? And mm -hmm. I think, again, this isn't just me making up excuses for my hedonism. There, there is sort of a deep and long religious tradition uh, or different religious traditions that take upon this idea. Because, you know, fundamentally, one way to look at this journey that – we are embarking upon is a religious journey, right? It's renouncing the world mm. effectively. Mm. I was studying in this Buddhist monastery in Nepal, and uh, you know, one of the other students there was a Hindu scholar. And I knew, and I still know very little about Hinduism, but what she told me was the end of Hinduism is very similar to the end of Buddhism, right? The escape of, of, of the cycle of suffering. Mm -hmm. Now, for the Buddhist, the, right, the, the next, next not logical step, or at least according to some earlier schools, is to meditate on the perversities of the world. You know, what, one example of such a meditation would be, you know, to ha have in mind the body of a beautiful woman and then imagine it as a rotting corpse, right? But what the Hindu scholars said that really surprised me is that Hinduism did the exact opposite, that it not only prescribed, but gave a very rigorous and detailed handbook of enjoying worldly pleasures. Now, there's many different uh, interpretations of why this is, but I think the most interesting one is satire. Uh, and what she told me was one way to interpret why Hinduism, which had an equally world-renouncing goal, 
prescribed worldly pleasures instead of, you know, the seemingly the logical Buddhist reaction, which is to renounce worldly pleasures, is because it's a sort of satire that it wants to give you all the orgies and all the feasts and all the festivities until you, through your experience alone, can validate its, its, its sort of nothingness. Mm. And that is, is, in some sense, the, the journey that I think I'm on. There are, I have mm. clear desires that I had since a kid, and I aim to satisfy them. And I think by satisfying them, I, I will be, become disillusioned by them. Now, obviously, I don't mm. think this can be, uh, this is not an effectively replicated strategy by everyone. It, it requires one, I think, you having a, a greater thing um, to go to after disillusionment. Uh, and for me, that's w- without a doubt philosophy. Um, two, it requires you to be quite effective in the world into a- obtaining the things that you want, right? Otherwise, you're going to spend like 70 years of your life trying to get these things, and by that time, it will be too late. Um, and three, I think it re- requires constant introspection. So it's not just a mindless indulgence and not just a, a license for just pure hedonism. So that is mm-hmm. the path that I've taken upon, mm. or the large stroke. But, but that is not Girardian. That's not canonically Girardian in, in any sense of the word. Yeah, it, it, that's interesting that you've gone down that route. Because uh, for me, it feels like the more effective thing is to go the other way, uh, which is almost too fast from a lot of this stuff. And yeah. recognize that you really don't need it after uh, after a while like the uh, you know like desiring you know to have to get i don't know some uh, lambo or something like that it's just like okay it, like just fast from it for a while um all the inputs that give you that sort of inflame yeah, that desire yeah. and it kind of goes away on its own almost yeah and here you know i'm tempted to draw a distinction mm-hmm. between desires that are core and less core, right? Like, for mm. example, I, I, I maybe have like a very tiny desire to, to drive a Lambo, mm-hmm. um, but it's not very mm. strong. And in that case, you know, I can just mm. renounce it and get rid of it. Um, mm. But to be mm. an entrepreneur, to be, you know, a worldly, a worldly success, I think, unfortunately, mm. I was exposed to that ideal too strong, too young, and for too long mm. to be able to renounce it in, a, in the same way. And this is what, what actually mm. Gerard says about Clausewitz, the uh, famous philosopher of war, as well as general in the Prussian army, he said that Clausewitz, unfortunately, grew up as a, as a banner boy in the Prussian military. Uh, and, and as mm. a result, he had no choice. Like, uh, remember how we talked about how our models ground our fundamental normative intuitions about what's wrong or right? Mm. In the example of Clausewitz, military glory and, and sort, of, uh, sort of historic heroism is something that he cannot escape from. Uh, and so I think, and the Tibetans had a really good line here, you know, it's better not to begin things, but once you've begun, it's better to finish them. And, and, and mm. in a similar way, I think if we were to examine ourselves, you know, for, for certain desires that we have, that is much more easily renounced. Fasting is, I think, the much better route. But the, I, I think mm. for many people, there are also a deep set of desires that are so rooted in their identity that renouncing them would actually create resentment and not freedom. I.e., mm. uh, if I were uh, you know, to go into the academy today, I think I would be very resentful of worldly, mm. of worldly success. And I, maybe I, maybe I you know, be a Marxist or be a, uh, an anti-political thinker be, because I'm resentful of my peers in industry. Right? And, and mm. this is a real problem right? that, that plagues people, re- resentment. So I think, wait, wait, wait. So are you, wait, wait, wait. Let me just get what you said straight. You think a lot of academics end up sort of like almost Marxist because they have an envy or a resentment of the people in industry? 
that's probably too broad of a claim, but, but I think directionally, that's correct. Yeah. Wow. That's a very interesting insight. Because, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a question that a lot of people have been asking. Why are academics so much to the left? Yeah. Um, I, mean, I mean, academics, right? They're um, compared to what mm-hmm. they were historically. You know, in China, you tested your way into, mm-hmm. into the royal court. You know, academics were mm-hmm. always in the religious eras, right? You were priests that had you know, some political function. Mm-hmm. Today, academics are incredibly impotent by comparison. Right, uh, mm-hmm. the only people who you know in the humanities, at least, can even be called that, that get any, any sort of worldly action are e- e- economics, uh, right? Philosophy, humanities, these sort of really roles that that, that were like made you into a cupbearer or or, or mm-hmm. gave you a lot of worldly influence today makes you rather impotent, right? And, and so again, uh, this is too broad of a statement, but I, I I think it is one psychological motor of why so many people mm. in the academy are, are on the economic left today, right? That, um, mm. yeah. There's actually a, a, a brilliant book. It's called, um, let, me, let me pull it up. I think it's called The Rise of the Intellectual Class that basically mm. tries to critique, it's a Marxist critique of the academy, and it mm. tries to identify the psychological motivators, okay, The Future of Intellectuals and the Rise of the New Class by Alvin Goldner. I think Alvin Goldner is a renegade Marxist who used Marxist uh, analysis to critique the intellectual class as having its own mm-hmm. sort of class ambitions and you know, class insecurities. I actually think this, this is one of his ideas as well. Mm. Very interesting. Hmm. And so having that, you know, like fasting from something won't necessarily work if you're if you still i guess in a sense desire it really strongly is yeah, that the line yeah, or yeah. And, and and you know maybe we can start tying everything together now this sort of greek nouveau rich and the, and the old money right mm-hmm. between the aristocracy mm-hmm. i mentioned one of the reactions of the aristocracy was to change what they fundamentally thought value to be right honor instead of money mm-hmm. but they no less desired money Right, like mm. they, they were still after it, and the same thing happened again with the with the nouveau rich, that they acted mm. to ban politically ar- aristocratic practices such as pederasty, but really secretly start everyone started practicing them, and so it's this idea that there are core desires or core self conceptions that one has grown up with that you can't really renounce, or if you think you renounced it, you're really resentful. And the only way out is through. Mm. And let me give you an actual example. This is a perfect example that will tie everything together. So I had a, an acquaintance in college who, when I met him in freshman year, was an economic progressive, right? Distributed justice, mm. uh, cares a lot about uh, the poor. Uh, and I was like, what a great guy, how compassionate. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I noticed something very odd, right? That he, that he was like just really rude to other people. And you know, his, compa- his state of compassion was nowhere to be found. And you know, when we were in junior year, he confessed to me that his distaste for money and capital was a less caring for the poor than hatred of the rich. And the reason oh. is because he grew up in a, as a middle-class person in an upper-middle-class, upper-class environment. And so it was always made to feel uh, worse off, especially in the economic domain, than his richer peers. And so progressive economics for him was really a weapon to secure moral victory, right? Mm. And in fact, you know what, what, what he's doing now for graduation? He's an investment banker. And the reason is because <laughs> he never really had a problem with money. 
he only appeared to hate it so much because he wanted it so badly. And his, his, mm. renounce, his renunciation was really not a renunciation at all, but a deep form of resentment. Hmm. So it's, I guess you fall into the possible trap of deceiving yourself and thinking that you've actually renounced it when in fact you, you're just inflaming your own desire or, or, or by you're after denying it. it in different means uh-huh. or, or, but I think mm-hmm. the most devastating thing here is that, you know, just like mimesis, this form of resentment, this sort of pushing away from the crowd, you're still not doing the thing for its own sake, Right. Like mm. if I grew up with a bunch of Marxists and I became a Marxist, then mimesis can lead me astray because I'm doing the thing because that's what everyone else is doing. Now, in the case of my friend or my acquaintance, rather, mimesis still leads him astray, but negatively, right? He's doing it because that's what other people are not. And that's the logic of resentment. But in both cases, you're living a life that is fundamentally not your own. Hmm. And that's really kind of the modern dilemma, isn't it? Like there's so few things that are our own. We we borrow from everybody else because there are mimetic models everywhere and they are all sort of like vying for our attention. And finding a good mimetic model or something like that can be so challenging that, you know, living in the modern world in some sort of reasonable way becomes a very difficult task. Yeah, and then Jimmy, I'll, maybe I'll, I'll end with this mm-hmm. with this idea, and it'll also be a little uh, shameless sort of teaser for the rest of the lecture series. Mm-hmm. Is that mm-hmm. there's something unique about the modern world that makes it mm. much more susceptible to mimetic forces, and and that has mm. to do with the proliferation, uh, loosely speaking, of of equality. That mm. in olden times, uh, gender roles, caste systems, guild lineages how oppressive they may have been, narrowly constrain who we compete and imitate uh, against to a very narrow and an established group of people, and therefore making our lives a lot easier. But now, right, we think we demand access for all. We, we, we tell children that they can be anything that they want to be. And as, as a result, uh, they have to, in, in their older age, have to face up to the and make excuses for all the things that they, they are not. And, and mm. so Gerard, however, does think that equality is an, is an ultimate good. He thinks that it's brought about by Christ, but, but he thinks it has very devastating and, in fact, apocalyptic and violent consequences. And, and for the exact reason why that is, I think your, your listeners are going to have to wait for, for the rest of the lecture series, specifically uh, lectures uh, six and seven. Yeah, that's an intriguing concept, and I, I suspect that it has... A lot to do uh, with uh, sort of like the elimination of differences in yes. almost every society at this point, which, uh, which I mean, they might be, there, there's probably a lot of upside, but there's also some downside, particularly with respect to how much more competition there is in any particular endeavor. Okay, so where can people find you? Where is this, you know, series on Gerard that people can find and so on? Yeah, so if you go on YouTube and you, and you Google Jonathan, with an H, J-O-H-N, uh, Jonathan at Limbo, um, that's the name of the YouTube channel. And we'll have the first lecture out already. It's an overview of the entire lecture series. So it covers everything that we talked about today, including this sort of trajectory of history. Uh, and then we're going to be rolling out the rest six lectures once every uh, month to like month and a half. Awesome. Yeah. And uh, if you haven't read Gerard or don't know anything about him, the intro is an excellent way to get exposure to 
these very interesting ideas. I think ideas that aren't necessarily being promulgated in academia or anything like that. But I think it's definitely worth reading and finding out more about from a philosophical um, perspective. So uh, thank you, Jonathan, for coming on. Thanks, Jimmy. Unchained Capital is a sponsor of this podcast. I'm an advisor to the company. I know the team well, and I'm excited for what they are building. If you need multi-sig collaborative custody or a Bitcoin native financial services partner, learn more at unchain.com. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Bitcoin Fixes This. Jonathan B. can be found at at Jonathan B. with an H and JonathanB.com. Until next time, fiat the best.